standard issue for all women. Hello, Jen here to tell you about this week's episode of The Sunday Chops. Throughout February, we are running a series on pregnancy because we haven't really done much of that on the podcast. And, you know, kind of a big deal for some women, although not so much for others, but interesting nonetheless. You probably won't be that surprised to learn that, spoiler alert, a lot of the themes that we talk about a lot on the podcast, such as women's health and pain and all of that kind of jazz, sort of same deal in pregnancy, really. Another thing you can't not really talk about as a women's podcast is the way that women's bodies are viewed, which is as relevant in pregnancy as it is many other times of a woman's life. So with that in mind, for the first of this series, I got myself down to the Foundling Museum to have a look at their exhibition, portraying pregnancy from Holbein to social media. I chat to the exhibition's curator, Karen Hearn, and the Founding Museum director, Caro Howell, to find out more about how pregnancy and pregnant women's bodies have been viewed over the last 500 years. And it is fascinating. While I've got you here, just want to mention very quickly that if you're looking for something to do on Valentine's Day, because you fancy having something to do on that particular day, or just because it's a Friday night and why not, we've got a show at King's Place in London and we will be joined by the fantastic political commentator, author, comedian, multi-hyphenate Aisha Hazarika and actor Pauline McLean. It's going to be ace, so come along, please do. We'll have a lovely time. There will be much love in the air, though largely unrelated to Valentine's Day. Anyway, back to today's podcast, and I hope that you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed chatting to Caro and Karen about this excellent exhibition. I've just had a little look around the Portraying Pregnancy exhibition at the Family Museum, and I am joined by curator of the exhibition, Karen Hearn, also honorary professor at UCL, and Caro Hal, director of the Family Museum. Hello. 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 Thank you both for chatting to me today. I've just, as I said, had a little wander round downstairs and it's quite a fascinating exhibition. I believe in the blurb it says it's the first major exhibition to explore representations of the pregnant female body through portraits from the past 500 years. So, why has it taken so long to have an exhibition of this nature? Well, I've been working on the topic for almost 20 years. And when I started, amazingly, pregnancy was still not really totally a comfortable subject for people, particularly older people. Women were still wearing tent-like dresses, possibly with a pie-crust collar. And the idea of images, particularly portraits of pregnancy, was one that really hadn't been addressed at all. My specialisation is Tudor and Stuart period, British art and Dutch art. And I started on the subject when I realised that there were these extraordinary Elizabethan and Jacobean portraits of women depicted as visibly pregnant, which is a complete anomaly. Otherwise, in English art up to 1603, you don't see women depicted as pregnant, and that's really right up in broad terms, till the late 20th century. There were some sort of early or earlier portraits of pregnant women, quite interestingly, I guess, during the Elizabethan era, so Elizabeth I. Is that a coincidence that it happened at that time when obviously we had the so-called Virgin Queen and her, you know, no children, no heir sort of situation? 
I don't think it is a coincidence. I think there are a number of reasons why this strange way of presenting, or anomalous way of presenting woman in a painted portrait occurred at this time. I think it's after Elizabeth I comes to the throne, England is a Protestant country. I think the sitters tend to be, where we know who they are, Protestant. Catholicism, privileges, virginity. But Martin Luther wrote that a pregnant woman was holy. And in fact, there is also a quote where he says that even if she is not married. Now, of course, for most of the period that we cover, a woman was expected to be married. And a pregnancy outside marriage was shameful, problematic. uh, And that's really where the Foundling Museum comes in. But it seems to be a Protestant thing. As Elizabeth I increasingly appeared not likely to marry and therefore not likely to have a child from her own body, of course there's huge anxiety about who is going to succeed to the throne and there are various candidates. In the end, it's James VI of Scotland. So I do think that's part of it. It's also a period in which you have a lot of families who have... Under Henry VIII, they've acquired land, property, they've risen up, but they're new families and they want to really establish themselves with big families, uh, lots of heraldry. So I think that, again, these portraits are connected with, with that. There's also the question of anxiety about death in or around childbirth. So this is a woman who might die, And some of the portraits definitely are slightly older women, like the image of Mildred Sissel, the wife of Lord Burley, who's 36 or 37 when she's depicted as very visibly pregnant. I think all these reasons come together to produce these extraordinary anomalous pictures. But then by about 1630, we're not really seeing those those pictures start to go out. And then we see pregnancy, perhaps still alluded to in portraits, but by much more subtle means. Harry, can you tell us a bit about where the Foundling Museum comes in here and and why you were so keen to to show this exhibition? The museum tells the story of the Foundling Hospital, which was simultaneously the UK's first children's charity, but also its first public art gallery. And it was founded in 1739 to take in babies who were at risk of abandonment by their mothers, usually as a result of poverty. And led by the artist William Hogarth, the kind of leading artist of the day, galvanised and used their creativity through donating art and creating beautiful interiors to attract polite society to the charity's cause and leverage funds. The museum is full of portraits. This extraordinary collection that was given by the artists of the Foundling Hospital that dates from the 1740s onwards is predominantly portrait-based. And a lot of them are portraits of the governors, but women were not allowed to be governors. So even though they were the first supporters of the Foundling Hospital, there were armies of women who ran the Foundling Hospital. You have obviously all the mothers who are the catalyst for the Foundling Hospital's existence. Women are a real absent presence in the museum. And I think we, the team, and and visitors feel their absence because they are there. Their story is what we're telling, but they visibly are not. So we often in our exhibitions are looking at different creative ways to surface that female voice and that female story. And one of the 
masterpieces in our collection is a great painting by William Hogarth called The March of the Guards to Finchley. And what's particularly striking about it is that one of the central characters is a heavily pregnant woman. And although it's not a portrait, she's, she's a Londoner, it still is actually it's striking and it's unusual. And so that was our little hook in. And we thought, actually, this is very interesting because it's part of this wider story of women's lives, women's experiences, women's agency in the world being either suppressed or being told very partially. And I was very interested in Karen's amazing research that wasn't just those portraits of women where their pregnancy is shown, because obviously the kind of woman to have a portrait painted, you are already talking about a member of the kind of wealthier and more aristocratic classes. So those women, their lives are historically well documented. And of course, Karen's research has shown it's really been the, the first time that people have bothered to kind of compare their historical biography with the date that the painting was painted and then reveal those portraits where you go, well, we know she was heavily pregnant at this time but it is simply not here in this picture. So thinking about that as well, Karen's amazing point about all of these women, you know, most adult women being pregnant for most of their lives yeah. and leading full lives, busy lives, working lives, that once you start thinking about this, which of course self-evidently we should know, and yet it's that funny thing, if you don't see something reflected back at you, if you don't see it, it sort of ceases to be. Mm. And we are all so conditioned well, to not seeing pregnancy, that you, I think, begin to conceptually not see it as well. And it's that moment where a light bulb is turned on. And I think, I, you know, I very much hope people will, men and women, will be going around the exhibition going, God, of course. And also, art historians will be heading out to collections and doing a bit comparative work. So it's all, all on Karen's shoulders. And that uh, people will be going to their archives and going, okay, this, this ancestor, this woman, this... Let's just do a little bit of fact-checking about, you know, her life in relation to this image. It's quite interesting, I think, the point you make about the women's stories being really integral to the Family Museum, because obviously mm. the Family Museum, as a charity, is say, brought in children, mostly from impoverished backgrounds or perhaps illegitimately mm. born. And, and that sort of made me think about one of the things that has struck me through doing a bit of research around this, which is shame as well. Mm. The, there's another link there, in a way, which is shame. The mm. fact that you know pregnancy hasn't been mm. visibly represented until recently. It strikes me as like another extension of women are supposed to mm. basically feel ashamed about their bodies, pretty much through all stages. <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's very interesting. I think I'm not sure that I'd use the word shame, although I think that actually is quite a, a relevant word. Historically, there are concerns. Pregnancy for women, until quite recently, really, through the 500 years that the show covers, once a woman was married and had perhaps brought, we're talking about the higher levels of society, well, many levels of society, had brought property, land, connections, whatever, to her husband's family, her next task was to have children. And women wanted children. They were distressed if they didn't have children. It was problematic for them if they didn't have children. And, of course, many didn't. For whatever reasons, children didn't come. And, of course, children came from God. God gave you children, and 
in many contexts, the more children God gave you, the more you were blessed. But a visibly pregnant woman, it's a sign that a woman has been sexually active. And this is highly problematic. So I'm not sure that the word's shame, but it's, it's allied with that. And that's one reason, I think, why we so seldom see women depicted as visibly pregnant mm. in, in visual form until we get into the 20th century. And then there comes a point comparatively late in the 20th century in the mainstream, and in British art particularly, where women artists are starting to practice and are interrogating, are looking at their own pregnancies, interrogating those. Women, of course, I need hardly say, represent pregnancy in a completely different way from men. Mm. I agree, and I think it, it is this idea of agency, because I think throughout Western art history, the image of the woman in art is one of passivity, and usually constructed in such a way as to give the male gaze, be that the owner or the commissioner, or the kind of free reign. And Karen's absolutely right. To be pregnant is self-evidently to have autonomy <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a human being. And autonomy and passivity don't sit happily side by side. And I think it's very hard to look at an image of a pregnant woman and somehow obliterate their personality and see them merely as something decorative because they clearly aren't and I think that tension is what's so interesting in these works you know Karen has mentioned that you know a kind of a real seismic moment was the Annie Leibovitz cover of The Pregnant Demi Moore in 1991 for Vanity Fair and you know again I remember that cover because I'm old enough to. But what I'd forgotten was the extent of the scandal that it caused and the fact that you had news agents who refused to stock the magazine or insisted wow. that the cover be covered over or kept it on the top shelf with the pornography. And it's, it, it's sort of now mind-blowing, but that was a real watershed. And I think what's interesting as well is that when you think about artists who are famed for their kind of radical sort of I'm thinking Lucian Freud and his you know his naked portraits of Jerry Hall and Kate Moss of course you put two and two together and they all post date the Demi Moore image that in fact his image of his pregnant wife predates is much more demure and alludes to her pregnancy rather so it's you know even the kind of the um, the enfant terrible of art it's still a territory that they don't approach so you know we have that Vanity Fair issue in the exhibition and it really is you you absolutely see the before and the after and what comes after is very different but also I think one of the things that we also highlight in the show is the continuing challenges that women face because we also have the 2017 Leibovitz Vanity Fair cover of the naked Serena Williams mm. Which, you know, I think if any of us thought, we've all done with this now, no, we're not. Because, of course, <laughs> if it's a black woman yes. having, or, you know, kind of displaying beautifully her, sort of her autonomy, and let's face it, she is a goddess <laughs> in most people's eyes. But the, the reaction to that image was extraordinary. So the show ends with the 2017 image of Beyoncé, pregnant with her twins and it's very interesting to see how she has in a sense reclaimed and adopted a lot of the iconography that you the visitor will have seen kind of over the previous centuries and not exactly reclothed herself 
but in a sense used those art iconography to really, in a sense, mediate. But then, of course, the other amazing thing about that image is that not only did she commission it herself as a woman, <laughs> she published it herself, you know, and, uh, and you know, broke the internet in the process. So I think that's also a wonderful end point of autonomy in terms yeah. of going, yeah, I will, I will commission and I will publish and I will have control over this. It's interesting you have two women of colour in the same year and the reactions to those different representations mm. are so different and I think there's probably a lot more to unpick there about colourism and mm. things like that. But, I mean, I'm basically obsessed with Beyonce. Um, <laughs> what same person isn't? <laughs> well, quite, exactly. And it, who knew I would ever get this opportunity? But since I do, Karen, as an art historian, please, can you talk me through <laughs> that famous Beyonce picture? One thing I would say, of course, there is the famous picture, and we have it on display on an iPad in the exhibition, with the arched screen of flowers behind her, and she's wearing a... A sort of white cream-coloured veil, pants, as it were, and her stomach, which it, for twins, you know, is not that... It's not perhaps as large as it, as, as it would be. But it is, in fact, one of a number of images yeah. because she subsequently then published the others. But this is the key one and the one that everybody knows. Rather as with Vanity Fair, in both the cases of Demi Moore and of Serena Williams... Those are the cover images, but in fact, of course, inside is, a, in both cases, a lengthy article about the sitter, talking about their pregnancy, their partners, and many other photographs. So it's interesting, the image that is chosen in each case for the front cover. But the Beyoncé image has been likened a lot to medieval Madonna and child, like people like Dürer, German. The flowers behind her are mostly roses, Roses are a very capacious symbol for artists to use for women. So you see Van Dyck in the 17th century, in Britain, his British art particularly, using them a lot, and they seem to symbolise woman, married woman, whatever, sometimes connected with a woman's pregnancy. The Lucian Freud, he's showing his partner, they've recently discovered she's pregnant, she's holding a rose with thorns on it, and another rose lies in her lap. So roses weave in and out of the narrative of historically of images of pregnant women. So that's something that we're seeing in the Beyoncé. Roses are associated with uh, the goddess Venus, mm -hmm. and she is the goddess of love in its many mm. forms, really. So that it's a very direct con connection between rose, mm. love, Venus femininity. We have in the show a reproduction of the portrait that was done of Mary Tudor. Yes, a uh, very famous one. A very famous. It's in the Prado and um, so we were not able to borrow it but we are showing a, a reproduction of it. Mary had come to the throne a year before and in July the following year she had married the Habsburg Philip of Spain who already, in fact, was a widower a decade younger than her. And at the time that that portrait was painted, she was thought to be pregnant. She had all the signs of pregnancy. There's a lot of documentation about her sitting, holding court with her bodice unlaced, or loosely laced, I think is what they mean, which is what 
pregnant women did at the, at the time. So that is thought to be a portrait of her. They thought she was pregnant. She's holding a red rose. The red rose has connections with Mary as well, Virgin Mary, and she's named after Mary. As I say, it's a capacious symbol. So we don't see from her body, bodily outline that she's pregnant, though it sounds as if she looked pregnant at the time. In fact, it was a phantom pregnancy, and it's... It's a very sad story. In fact, she had a second one later. She never had a child mm, in reality. Hello, Mickey here. Sorry to interrupt your listening pleasure, but I just thought, as you're having such pleasure listening, you might be up for helping us out in making more content that champions women. That's easy to do. You can just bob along to our Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash standard issue, and any spare bunch you might have found in your pocket down the back of the sofa, feel free to chuck it to us. Much obliged. One of the things that comes up in the exhibition, and you sort of touched upon it earlier, the idea that a lot of women see pregnancy is problematic because some women would die or their babies wouldn't make it. It's obviously very sad. But I feel there's still kind of a continuity of that in a way, in the way that now, for example, you're still told, well, you know, don't don't tell people before you're 12 weeks kind of thing, which I can see from a practical point of view makes sense in some ways, um, but also I personally think that that's a little bit of you'll feel a bit silly and embarrassed if you then have to tell people you're not pregnant anymore, which I think is a bit of a daft way of looking at things personally. And I think that um, a lot of that is because basically you're supposed to feel like you didn't do your job properly as a woman, and that is where the discomfort about it comes from. I think it's very interesting that a lot of things, despite the shifting social attitudes, Actually, a lot of things haven't really changed that much, have they? I think that's very interesting that you mentioned that, of course, now women tend to be advised, anyway, to think about going public before a certain stage. And in the past, now we have ultrasound, we have many ways of establishing that a woman is pregnant and... But in the past, of course, there was no ultrasound. People didn't know what was going on inside a woman's body. Mm. They had all sorts of, to us, very strange ideas so that a woman might be pregnant with something that wasn't a child. There was this thing that they called the mole. And if there was a miscarriage, what they saw as a result of the miscarriage, they, they called a mole. They didn't make the link that it was actually an embryonic child. So, in fact, the miscarriage was a good thing because this alien creature had been expelled from the body. But because of that, it was a woman's own sensations were the key evidence to pregnancy or not pregnancy. And the crucial clincher was when the child moved in in the fourth month. So rather similar. And that's known as quickening. Mm. And And that's when the child moves in the womb, that's when effectively they would announce it because they they really didn't know if they were pregnant or not or pregnant with a real child. So it's a very interesting parallel. Mm. But of course in the past, without antibiotics, there was an accurate perception that childbirth was very dangerous and that the woman and perhaps the child might die and every woman really up to a certain point 
would have known a woman who died in childbirth, I think, I think it's fair to say. Very often, the child would be born, and then the woman would go down with puerperal fever. So when you have somebody who, the child is born and they die six days later, nine days later, it's of puerperal fever, which now is completely, you know, in, in Britain, in the West, that is not going to happen because of anti antibiotics. So antibiotics in the mid-20th century were a complete game-changer, and it's very important. So people coming to the exhibition might actually be quite moved by the fact that so many of the women whose stories we tell and, and are told in the accompanying book did die around or after childbirth. We have in the exhibition the original manuscript of a woman called Elizabeth Jocelyn, highly educated woman. After six years of marriage, she became pregnant for the first time. And she then wrote a letter for her unborn child in case she should die. So we have that in the display case. And she writes something like, you know, to my dear babe, it may seem strange to thee to hear from me the mother who died when thou wert born. In fact, she did. Presumably, purple fever, she died a few days later. And they found the manuscript. And two years later, a clergyman who was connected with the family published it. So next to it, we have the published version, two years later, 1624. And it has an introduction in which... Thomas Goad, the clergyman, explains how when she first discovered she was pregnant, as then travailing with death itself, she secretly took order for a winding sheet, so a shroud. So she ordered a shroud and she wrote this letter. The book, in fact, became, I guess one might say, a bestseller, went into a lot of editions right up to the 19th century. So it had quite an impact, the mother's legacy. So these representations were sort of there, and then they went, they went away again for a period of time. And then they didn't really come back, as you say, until sort of late 20th century. And the example that actually I didn't know about until about the last year, the one that I remember, I, I remember being a teenager and Mel Blatt from All Saints <laughs> being on top of the pot. Yes. She was heavily pregnant, and she had some like combat pants on and a vest top. And you could, you know, the bump was there for all to see, and she was, you know, dancing around, whatever. And I remember that being, this in the 90s, that was a big deal at the mm. time. That's very interesting you mention it, because actually she was predated by Nina, Nina Cherry, Cherry yeah. who is uh, in the late 80s. And she, in an interview, she said her daughter, Tyson, her second, her second child... Uh, was the most famous bump in pop because she appeared on top of the pops wearing, again, tight-fitting clothing. And she was also photographed with her pregnant stomach revealed. Uh, and it's such a stylish photograph in the exhibition. And that, too, caused a, a big controversy. What I think is interesting, and the point has been made, that that was a controversy in Britain and it's a woman of colour. But the Demi Moore, which is four years later, that's the one that really has the impact. And, of course, she's not a woman of colour. But I think the key thing is it was an American magazine. And it was an American magazine that appeared in internet. So it was an Indian edition, French edition, 
English edition, causing controversy everywhere. In connection with that, in researching for the exhibition, I was looking at Tina Brown's diaries, and Tina Brown was the editor of Vanity Fair in 1991. And I think it's actually quite interesting, her role in this, because she commissioned Annie Leibovitz to do the photo shoot. Demi Moore at the time was the most highly paid woman actor in Hollywood. She was absolutely on a high. Mm. And so they wanted to interview her. She was, in fact, pregnant with her second child. And Brown writes, well, we could just do the usual fudge and show her just head and shoulders. So that was the standard thing. You wanted to show a photograph of a celebrity, but they were pregnant. You just did a head and shoulders. But Brown wanted to kind of push against that. So she... she left it to Leibovitz to how she did it, and she was pretty amazed to see naked portraits. But Brown's role is, is quite important. She herself had been pregnant the previous year, and she'd rather resented the fact that her own pregnancy, presumably, was wearing those tent-like dresses and whatever. <laughs> yeah. So she really felt that there was a personal element to the fact that yeah. here was more showing, you know, the pregnancy was was revealed. I think what's rather lovely is while we were putting the show together about a month ago I was on a bus travelling past the Smithfield site which of course is going to become the, the new Museum of London site and they have a changing display of billboards as part of their communication campaign about the change of use of the site and the museum moving there and of course I suddenly looked out of the window and there is a parade of life-size photographic images of all of these heavily pregnant women, you know, proudly displaying their bumps. So I kind of, sort of emailed Sharon at the Museum of London and was like, you know, but these are so amazing. And she said, well, it's a project we've been doing with mums in Walthamstow. It's absolutely wonderful. We have that image in the reading area outside the museum because it absolutely is that point at which the thing that was the Hollywood star, Beyonce, kind of, you know, Jerry Hall, Kate Moss, it's now absolutely part of the everyday vernacular. And it's fantastic that not only do these group of pregnant mothers in Walthamstow are, you know, happy and loud and proud about their pregnancy and happy to have them, but that the image that we show, you just see Londoners just walking past completely jailed at these images and the, the distance that's been travelled from 1991 to you know, 2019 is huge but it's even huger if you kind of take that 500 year span but the speed of change in a very short space of time has been remarkable and yet you're right that you could say that the, these changes are still in many ways superficial in terms of women's representation within society, women's sense of freedom to speak honestly and openly about their pregnancy at whatever point in that pregnancy it is. We will be doing a major symposium later in March looking at the issue of maternal mental health and very much addressing the, the stigma around mothers being able to be open about the fact that they are struggling and 
it is incredibly challenging. A lot has changed, a lot has changed for the good, but there is, there's a lot more to do. The exhibition is running from now until the 26th of April. If we want to find out more about that symposium you've just mentioned, Caro, when, how can we do that? The um, symposium is actually not part of our public programme, but if people are interested to find out more about it, then they can just write to our inquiries at Foundling Museum. .org.uk and we will get back in touch with them. And Karen, you have a book which is accompanying this, this exhibition. The book is called, like the exhibition, Portraying Pregnancy with the subtitle From Holbein to Social Media. It's published by Paul Holberton Publishing. I think it's widely available, although I know there are a lot of copies here at the Foundling Museum, so you can come and buy it here. When you come to the exhibition and and by buying the copy here, you will be supporting the museum. Excellent. And what's next for you? Have you got anything? Well, as a specialist in 16th, 17th century British and Dutch art, I have a future project relating to Anthony van Dyck and my long-term research, which is on a little-known although I've been doing quite a lot to make him less little known, <laughs> a wonderful 17th century portrait painter who worked in England called Cornelius Johnson. So a big book on him. And where can we find out more about? If you were to Google Karen Hearn, K-A-R-E-N-H-E-A-R-N, and UCL, you'll find it, and it's quite a detailed website. Thank you both so much. It's a brilliant exhibition. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, Hannah here. Just wanted to let you know that if you like what we do, you can help us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really does help, especially if you give us five stars. Did that sound threatening enough? Give us five stars. Standard issue. For all women.